Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Tonight on The Readout. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol. A judge ruling about those comments from Donald Trump would seem to open up the possibility of lawsuits against the former president by victims of the January 6th insurrection. Meanwhile, more transcripts were just released by the January 6th committee, revealing a whole lot of Trump insiders with very convenient memory lapses. Also tonight, more of George Santos' lies are uncovered. We'll look closely at his finances, which highlight the glaring need for campaign finance reform. And in state after state, midterm voters rejected election deniers. And now Democrats have a golden opportunity to safeguard voting rights. One of the governors leading that fight joins me tonight. Good evening, everyone. I'm Maria Teresa Kumar, in for Joy Reid. And we begin tonight exactly one week after the January 6th committee dropped that damning 845-page report detailing their investigation. In an effort to beat the clock before Republicans take over the House next week, the panel released a trove of new transcripts today. It includes some names you might recognize, like former Trump advisor Steve Miller, Trump lawyer Christina Bob, former White House aide Stephanie Grisham, and Alyssa Farrow. Even those of Don Jr. and his girlfriend Kimberly were in there. Here are some of the highlights. Stephen Miller apparently did not remember whether or not he presented three prepared election night speeches to Trump. One for concession, one for victory, and get this, one for unclear results. He also said he didn't recall any conversations about Trump declaring victory, even if it wasn't clear he'd won. The former president's eldest son, Don Jr., also apparently had a hard time jogging his memory, including when he was asked about what happened to the quarter of a billion dollars raised by the Trump campaign after the election. His fiancée, Kimberly, claimed she did not solicit a $60,000 speaking fee for the riot, I mean the rally, on the 6th but that the pay was customary for appearances. She also compared the infighting within Trump world to the movie Mean Girls. And when asked about Ali Akbar, also known as Ali Alexander, she responded, isn't that what terrorists yell? You just can't make this up. We also have Trump lawyer Christina Bob, who told the committee that Senator Lindsey Graham said in a meeting with former chief of staff Mark Meadows and other White House officials days before the insurrection, quote, just give me five dead voters. Give me an example of illegals voting. Just give me a very small snapshot that I can take and champion, end quote. And former communications director Stephanie Grisham told the committee that even if the Secret Service had approved it, Trump wouldn't have marched to the Capitol saying, quote, I just know him. He's afraid of people. But even one week later, as we are still piecing together all this new information, there are a lot of unanswered legal questions. What does it all mean for the DOJ? Who else is implicated? And will Donald Trump finally be held to account? Joining me now is David Jolly, a former Republican and a former Republican congressman. 
Charlie, Charles Coleman Jr., civil rights attorney, MSNBC legal analyst, and host of Charles Coleman Podcast. And Hugo Lowell, political investigative reporter for The Guardian. And Hugo, I want to start with you because you have been following this so closely. You've been, been able to give us all the insights following the January 6th committee. When you saw this treasure trove of information that was dropped today, did anything stand out to you? I think what stand out to me the most was the failing memories of these really high profile Trump advisors. I mean, you look at people like Don Jr., you know, in addition to the points uh, you brought up before, you know, he couldn't remember whether Rudy Giuliani was around and talking to the president uh, the night of the election. You know, he couldn't remember if there were certain tweets that went out under his own account. He couldn't remember a lot of things. And, and likewise, for Kimberly Guilfoyle, his, his fiance, who couldn't recall uh, certain conversations she had with people connected to the January 6th rally organizers, despite you know she being on some of these communications and witnesses placing her at phone calls. So I think this is really a question now for the Justice Department. And the latest batch of transcripts really seem to be uh, areas where kind of prosecutors can now take over and see if they can jog the memories of some of these Trump advisors. You know, it was funny because right before the show started, I was trying to remember what the men in black were using when they were going around. And I realized that I think every single one of them that testified were using neuralizers and basically had their minds swapped, except for a few key witnesses that were lower hanging fruit that were junior staffers who decided to come forward. And one of the things that I found really interesting, uh, David, was the fact that Hutchinson came back and said, not only did I witness Mark Meadows putting paper in the fireplace and burning them, but I also remember clearly Marjorie Taylor Greene looking at the photos and saying, don't worry, my followers are going to be there. KAnon is going to be there. Talk a little bit about that. Is that surprising to you that we're seeing more revelations of this, of Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene really being part of this, what seemed concerted effort? Uh, no, not really. And I think what you're seeing is in an investigation this complex, when you have thousands of witnesses, either your junior staffers or your completely uh, ignorant actors of the law are the ones who give you the most information. The obfuscation, the failed memories, those come from your senior members who actually might be facing some type of culpability or liability. And so often they're coached that maybe you really don't remember the specifics and the honest answer is to simply say, I don't remember. So what do we get from Cassidy Hutchison, from Sarah Matthews, who was a deputy to Kaylee McEnany that uh, who resigned on the day of January 6th, you actually get a lot of honest impressions, some recollection of facts that ultimately tighten the screws on those senior staffers who are saying, I just can't remember the insurrection and I don't remember my role in the insurrection. You know, one of the damning things, in addition to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, were the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and others who are duly elected representatives in the United States Congress that clearly aided and abetted not just the planning, but the day of. We know that there were members of Congress in contact with insurrectionists that day. Ultimately, these are hard cases for the Department of Justice. Most of this comes down to the judgment of voters. But there will be elements that the Department of Justice can look at and make some hard prosecutorial decisions. So, Charles, that's where I want to follow up on. Now that we know that the January 6th committee basically recommended very strict argument of why Donald Trump, possibly Giuliani, Mark Meadows and Eastman should be prosecuted, possibly, 
They did touch their colleagues. They did touch these members of Congress that David is referring to. What is the recourse, though? Because it does seem that there's plenty of receipts to demonstrate that they were part of this insurrection as well. Well, you're absolutely right. I do think that the January 6th committee focused primarily on Donald Trump and his wrongdoing as it related to everything that happened with the insurrection. But in no way, shape or form should that limit the DOJ in terms of where they can proceed with their own investigation. And if they decide that they want to go after any of his co-conspirators or any of the people who are involved in helping to move this plan forward, they can absolutely do that. And the serious thing that they need to consider is that lying to the DOJ about what it is that you don't remember or fudging a story there is not going to go away so easily as it will talking to January 6th committee and Congress. I think that people need to understand that prosecutors are used to dealing with witnesses who all of a sudden don't have the best of memories And there are tools in terms of an investigative approach that you will take when questioning a witness who claims to have a fuzzy memory to try to pin them down. And I would expect that Jack Smith and all the prosecutors who are working with him are going to utilize all of those tools. And we may see additional people prosecuted by the DOJ, even though they told Congress there were things that they could not remember. And Hugo, it seems that they worked so meticulously, the the committee, to ensure that members, anybody, any layperson could pick up what the report was and actually skim through it. I want to talk to you about the chapters. I thought the chapters of how this was organized really speaks to how possibly someone even at the DOJ or so any you know individual American can pick it up and really cleanly understand what just happened. And I want to get your take. You know, the first one, chapter one, the big lie. Chapter two, I just want you to find 11,780 votes. That would have been the president. Chapter three, fake electors and the president of the Senate strategy. Chapter five, Just call it corrupt and leave the rest to me. Chapter five, a coup in search of a legal theory. Chapter six, be there, will be wild. Chapter seven, 187 minutes of dereliction. Talk about that breakdown. Yeah, look, it's a really smart way to lay out the story of January 6th. And I think the committee did a really great job in simplifying it. I mean... For those of us who have been covering this investigation and, and, and basically the events leading up to the Capitol attack itself, I mean, these are all of the key moments that preceded the Capitol attack. I mean, it really did start before the election. You have people like Steve Bannon uh, and people around the former president counseling him to declare victory uh, when he when he clearly lost. You know, that was obviously chapter one, the big lie, all the way through to the post-election period, you know, for instance, in in December, mid-December, when he was talking about seizing voting machines, when he met with the Freedom Caucus to start planning out uh, you know, ways to object to the certification on January 6th. And then, of course, that key tweet, uh, be there, will be wild. And that was really the crux um, in the timeline, which led to a lot of far-right groups like, you know, Stop the Steel, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys. You know, these are the guys that actually stormed the Capitol, gear up. And we actually see a lot of this in the transcripts. And when you read through the transcripts, you know, for, for instance, with Ali Alexander, the Stop the Steel activist, you see how the pieces fit together. But the committee did the report in a way um, that you don't need to read the transcripts if you're, you know, just dipping into the material. You can read the report and get a sense of just how the president was involved at every step of the way leading up to January 6th. I think that's right. And Charles, you know, what I find striking is this headline from NBC. It says, Judge says Trump may have been urging supporters to do something more than protest on January 6th. And when you see this coming from a judge, and then you also see the January 6th committee saying that Trump was personally responsible for inciting the riot, one of the things that came to mind for me, Charles, was whether or not 
this actually creates an opportunity for civil lawsuits to go against the president for, sadly, the lives lost that day by police officers and those that were maimed. Is there a possibility of civil lawsuits based on what we're finding? I think there is. I think that, you know, from a creative lawyering standpoint, it is not out of the realm of possibilities that we might see a wrongful death uh, lawsuit emerge from everything once the smoke clears. I think that there can be a case made that through his words being incendiary, he incited this level of violence. But I also think that the key piece to any sort of civil lawsuit and a wrongful death that ensues or wrongful death suit that ensues is that last chapter of the report, that 187 minutes of dereliction, because that's where you're going to actually get the most bang for your buck. And the argument there would be, regardless of whatever you may have intended to promote, regardless of what it was that you were pushing these people to do at the point that you saw this violence erupt at the point that you saw this protest if you will get out of hand and turn into a full-fledged riot you did nothing for over three hours that you could have called in the national guard you could have provided law enforcement with additional resources and backups you could have literally instructed your followers and your revelers to go home you did none of that and so i think that would be the key linchpin for anyone who was trying to make an argument that donald trump is ultimately responsible on a civil side for a wrongful death of any of the Capitol officers who lost their life that day. So my question to you, David, is where does this Trump indictment, where does that leave the GOP? Uh, With a front runner for the 2024 GOP nomination who is facing indictment, not just for January 6th, but he's facing it for election tampering in Georgia, possibly on tax fraud in the in Manhattan and a number of other courtrooms across the country. Does it matter to the GOP? I think the fascinating thing, Maria, is this. The the party writ large is kind of ready to be past Donald Trump. I would say it's almost unanimous, but that's only if you're looking at Republican leaders, which is very different than the Republican base. But if you take Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, they want the J6 committee and DOJ to do the dirty work for them. They actually want Donald Trump to be indicted. They want him prosecuted. They want him to fall. And then they will carry forward his grievance deep state narrative as they seek their own political fortunes. The question is what happens to Donald Trump's voters in that type of fractured GOP nomination process? We just don't know. I mean, politics is about addition. And how do other candidates take control of the party without Donald Trump's base? It can't happen. And so there's a there's a hard road ahead for Donald Trump and for all the other interested Republican leaders in today's GOP. Well, if folks weren't ready, David Jolly just basically laid out what 2023 will be about, and it's 2024 presidentials. Thank you so much, David Jolly, Charles Colman, and Hugo Lowell. Up next on The Readout, George Santos lied about practically everything. But what about he, how he financed his campaign? That is now under investigation. And is it yet another reason to talk seriously about campaign finance reform? The Readout continues after this. Stay tuned. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Now, it seems like just about every day we learn a little bit more about just how dishonest Congressman-elect George Santos truly is. We know that Santos lied about his education, his business dealings, his philanthropic endeavors, and his self-proclaimed Jewish heritage. We're also now learning that he lied about where he went to high school and that he has offered conflicting accounts of how his mother died. You can't make him up. During his first campaign, he claimed that he attended an elite New York City private school in the Bronx, but that financial difficulties forced him to drop out. The school could not find any records of him. And last year, Santos sent out a series of contradictory tweets about his mother's death. In July of 2021, he claimed that 9-11 claimed his mother's life. Five months later, however, Santos stated that his mother died in December of 2016. Dishonesty is not a deal breaker for members of Congress or soon to be members of Congress, unfortunately. However, in savory, it's not necessarily a crime. Lying about how you financed your campaign is a crime. And that is what federal and local prosecutors are investigating. Santos, who says he spent most of his life in poverty, made a sizable personal loan to his campaign after dramatic jump in his reported personal wealth. The big unanswered question is where did all that money come from? Now, you are allowed to loan money to your campaign, but it is illegal to use a company to funnel cash in order to disguise corporate campaign contributions. Huge difference. On Wednesday, Santos told Semaphore that he made his recent fortune in the, quote, capital introduction business, negotiating contracts with high net worth individuals, but he refused to divulge how. The multi-million contracts entailed or if he could share the names of previous clients from his business. Today, he told the Daily Beast that the money he moved from his company to his campaign was legally loaned from his own personal funds because he was the company's sole owner. The Daily Beast also reported that a number of his company's clients also happened to be, get this, campaign donors. Joining me now is Tim Miller, writer at large of The Bulwark, MSNBC political analyst, and co-host of The Next Level podcast. And Kadi Kobo, political reporter for Semaphore, who spoke this week to Congressman-elect Santos. Now, I want to start with you, Kadi. How did, how did this conversation go down? Kadi? Yeah, so I talked to him right after that very controversial hit with Tulsi Gabbard on Fox the other day. And, I mean... He was in his car and I explained to him previously that I really wanted to talk to him about this extremely controversial story, which is arguably like 
something as scandalous as like we haven't seen since like the Trump era. And I wanted to get down to the unanswered question about where the money he was able to donate to his campaign, because we all know that two years ago, he had only, I mean, I think he reported that he made 50 something thousand dollars. And he, you know, agreed. Um, he seemed like a person that was, uh, you know, understanding and wanted to clear the air about what his finances involved. Um, but when I did follow up about some of the contributions or what we, what these who these clients were that he told me about, he didn't respond. But to be clear, he talked about being, a, as you mentioned, a capital um, uh, intro person who was just basically break brokering deals between hedge funds, he, people in hedge funds and um, uh, wealthy people. So, Kadia, I have to say, I've never heard of that title ever in my life. Tim, I want you to bring into the conversation because your podcast is aptly called Next Level. This is Next Level. If you don't, if you if folks can't agree with me. What I find quite interesting, though, is that this getting elected to Congress, Tim, you're a Republican reform strategist. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. This takes a machine. It takes many people to actually make this happen. I know of so many kids that one day they wake up one morning and say, I want to be in Congress, too. And they have to work really hard to do it. Yet all of a sudden, this guy comes out of nowhere, come, become, goes from making, as Kadia mentioned, $55,000 on his returns to anything between $3.7 million to $11 million. And no one knows where the money came from. But there are donors and there is a Republican Party that seem to have propped him up. Can you talk about this? How does, how does this happen? Yeah, sure. Um, I, look, I, I think that the Trump era GOP was like a magnet for grifters. I, I think it's important to understand this, that there are a lot of, you know, obviously there are for people like myself that left uh, the party over Trump. But then there's another category of people that are Republicans that maybe in a different world might have run for Congress as a Republican, people with legit resumes, you know, people who had, you know, a, accomplishments in the military or in business, the types of folks that you would recruit. And they didn't want to run on the same ticket as Donald Trump. So they didn't run. And so what you had both in the strategist class and in the candidate class was C and D and F, and maybe in George Santos' cases, F minus, non-existent resume level candidates you know, who, who, who were, you know, uh, uh, throwing way above their, uh, or excuse me, punching way above their weight class, right? People that would have had no business running for Congress, that would have lost primaries against more competitive people in a different era and a different time. And, and, and during the Trump era, because Trump had won in spite of all of his myriad flaws and myriad corruptions and bigotries, you know, the, the kind of the conventional wisdom congealed that these lower candidates can run with similar flaws and be successful. That's how you get George Santos. It's how you get Herschel Walker. You know, we could, it's how you get Dr. Oz. We can go down the list of all the terrible Republican candidates this cycle. And I think that, that what also congealed during that time is a consultant class that maybe in the past would have said, nope, I'm not going to help this guy. I'm not going to work for this guy. I, I'm, I, I smell a rat here. You know, I'm starting to just say, hey, we're going to go along to get along and keep pushing him on through. And, and, you know, we'll see what happens when we get there. So, Tim, could you, Tim mentioned the Trump 
resemblance, like wanting to be like Trump. One of the things that the Daily Beast is now investigating is the fact that they may have shared even possible donors. There is Andrew Entertate. He is a cousin of one of the Russian oligarchs. He was also one person that had a dotted line to Michael Cohen and was using Michael Cohen as a consultant at the same time as Trump. And the more relevations of possibly having these foreign actors possibly being part of this campaign. Can you speak a little bit to that of where you think maybe some of these donors are coming from and perhaps uh, what you're learning as you the, since the last time you spoke to him? So, as I said, he didn't he wasn't um, willing to talk about some of the donors. But I have to say, this is a person who has repeatedly he's talked about, you know, punching up. And, you know, um, associating with people of the upper echelon. And this is his some of his arguments are that, well, I had to pretend because, you know, there's so much stress or, you know, pressure to be like these, this person you aren't. So he's it's, our entire conversation. He's told me that he was like, these are his clients. These are people. He is always associated with people who, you know, like rich people and, you know, people who can uh, use his services to negotiate contracts or negotiate different buying different services. So he as far as he will tell you that since 2015, he's been around this this cloud of, you know, like uh, uh, rich uh, people, specifically on Long Island. I mean, there's so much that we need to dig into, but I do want to ask you this, Tim. You seem to find some Republicans, even though they're retiring, actually say, we need to investigate. And I'm referring specifically to retiring Republican John Cato, who told Politico that Santos' situation is at a minimum, it was a colossal lack of judgment that has now put the conference in a very difficult position. It's a no-win situation. If he were to advise, or if you were to advise McCarthy at this moment, what would you tell McCarthy to do? Yeah. Well, just really quick. This is all obviously phony. So we'll see. I mean, like, this guy couldn't pay rent and he's making capital introductions to billionaires. Like I just the whole thing is ridiculous. <laughs> but so what is so CATCO has the ability to to be honest with McCarthy, give him honest advice. Right. Since he's leaving, he also voted to impeach Trump. Right. The, the, he doesn't have the same incentives that McCarthy has. And this is the problem. Right. Like it's very clear that the smart decision for the medium term is for McCarthy to throw this guy overboard. This is uh, this is obviously a raft. And it's better just to wash your hands of it. The problem is he doesn't have the 218 votes to be speaker yet. And so he's got to get every vote that he can. And Santos has said that he's going to support him. So I think the interesting question is, what does McCarthy do if and when he gets those 218 votes? Maybe the calculation changes. But for now, I think politically speaking, he feels stuck. I think one of the biggest challenges is that you actually haven't had a member of Congress since Traficant. Go do your history if you don't remember that actually be impeached out of his office. So Tim Miller and Katia Gobo, thank you so much. Up next, Minnesota Governor Tim Wall says he has a plan to protect election integrity without infringing on voting rights. He joins me next. Stay with us. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Voters stood up to democracy this year, electing Democrats who campaigned heavily on preserving it. Those Democrats are now working to ensure citizens, meaning all citizens, can participate in the democratic process by allowing every eligible voter to vote. But for the first time in a while, Democrats have the governors and legislators to help back this vision. Take Minnesota, for example, where Democrats are in charge of both chambers for the first time in eight years and where Governor Tim Waltz is asking his fellow Democrats to think big when it comes to voting issues. While in Michigan, Democrats took control of the state Senate for the first time in nearly 40 years, which is why both states plan to go on offense in 2023, says The New York Times, putting forward proposals that include automatic voter registration systems, pre-registering teenagers to vote before they turn 18, restoring the right for felons released from prison, and criminalizing election misinformation. Joining me now is Governor Tim Waltz of Minnesota. Governor, I have to say, I'm so excited that you're here because you are speaking my language. I deeply believe that every <laughs> single American should have the right to vote, and you're doing exactly the right thing by safeguarding it. So before we dig into that topic, I want to ask you, why do you think that the Democrats did so well in state legislators? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me this evening. And thanks for your work around this issue, the fundamental issue of democracy. I, I think mainly that we saw it here in Minnesota. Um, this issue of preserving the democracy was fundamental. The ability of women to access reproductive and safe legal abortion services, the idea that our public schools matter and that that fair wages and, and access to health care really matter. We were talking about things that impact people's lives. And we've been fighting for two years on this massive misinformation campaign, first with COVID and then, of course, since since uh, January 6th, as your your other guests so clearly pointed out, um, it's insidious. It's, it's getting into every aspect of our lives. And you see these people bring up these lies in states, and then they use it as an excuse and say, well, it won't hurt to tighten up our voting rights, uh, tighten up the way we do this. The fact of the matter is, across this country and here in Minnesota, we have safe, secure, and fair elections. We have high voter turnout here. And, and voting should not be some type of proving ground to run a marathon or stand in line for eight hours. I admire those people who do that, but it's ridiculous. And I'm, I'm done with it. Minnesotans are done with it. And I think folks across the country are done with it. So we're going to use this opportunity here in Minnesota to make it as easy as possible for people to vote, making sure we're doing all the things you mentioned from pre-registration um, to registration, automatic registration, to making sure that we're, we're translating into as many languages as possible to be able to have access to that, and then making it economically easier 
easier to vote. Um, it's it's ridiculous that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act hasn't passed, and it's ridiculous to me that that people are held up from voting because they can't afford to get off work to go cast a ballot. If states are going to need to lead on this, we're going to do it here. I know uh, Governor Whitmer has talked heavily about it, so yeah, I am with you. It's an exciting time that democracy prevails. And it doesn't mean they're going to vote for Democrats. It means that more people are going to have access to the ballot box and we get better representation. That's exactly right. And, Governor, one of the things that I've learned in studying all of this of democracy modernization is that the more people that participate— the extremes of parties go down because you want to get all the voters. Exactly and I right. think that what you're putting down is absolutely correct. And I want to, just before I ask you another question, I want to talk about what you just mentioned about misinformation. Because oftentimes before, yeah. in previous political chapters, disinformation, telling people where to vote the wrong way, that was kind of, these were called considered shenanigans. But it's becoming more ominous. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you oh, will yeah. do to ensure that there are penalties for that? Yeah. Years ago, it was the little things telling people to vote the day after the election. And, you know, we kind of brushed them off. Now we know it's intimidation at the at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. It's it's undermining the idea that uh, mail-in ballots aren't uh, legal. I think we need to push back on this. There, there's no guarantee to free speech on misinformation or, or hate speech, and especially around our democracy. Tell the truth where the voting places are, who can vote, who's able to be there. And I, uh, you know, watching some states uh, continue to weaken the protections around the ballot, I think, is what inspiring us to to lean into this. Again, all we're asking is, is to make it as easy and simple as possible to exercise their right to vote and participate in our democracy. And, and I'm in 100 percent agreement with you. That makes it so that more people are there. You get more opinions brought in. And I think it it, it tempers that that extremes that we get, because, again, I, I can't imagine someone going and standing in line for eight hours to try and vote and then being told that, you know, maybe the votes didn't count or maybe something's wrong. Or you have these candidates who lose and are on these uh, ridiculous uh, court cases that they keep bringing up and losing on. Here in Minnesota, we're going to bring faith back into that system. It's already been here. We, we're very proud that we're near the top in voter turnout, but there's more that we can do. I really like the way you slide in that you're the top in voter turnout. So I want to ask you this other question. When we, <laughs> it's passive aggressive, Minnesotan. <laughs> no, but, but, I, but I got it. I got it. I got it. And I applaud you. And I think we could all learn from Minnesota. But I want to ask you this question. A lot of the folks that ran for secretary of state banked on the idea on the big lie. However, every single one of them who ran for secretary of state in battleground states lost. And the Brennan Center did a right. beautiful article about it. What does that say to you? Because it shows that not only is the progressive Democratic base ready, but it shows that it, this idea of a denying election security doesn't sit well with Americans in general. Speak to that. That's right. Yeah. And here it was uh, independence. And re remember, we're a state where independence had the governor's office with Governor Ventura. So it is these are legitimate, you know, big eye independents that they care about this. Um, here in Minnesota, we have an incredible secretary of state, Steve Simon, and you won't find a more dedicated public servant. And I think this is probably what was echoed across the country. These are folks that do their job to protect the democracy and they do it with just 
they're, they're so passionate about it. And, and these election judges that are out there, my mother has been one. My 80-some-year-old mother was so proud of that ability to be a nonpartisan election judge. And you've got folks out there trying to undermine them. So I think what you saw was is, and I was convinced of this, attacking the democracy, attacking access to health care was a losing proposition. And, and not only did they win, but in states like Minnesota, it was predicted this would be a pretty close race. We're a purple state. Uh, our Secretary of State, Steve Simon, won overwhelmingly, double digits. So I, I think, Minnesota, I, I, not just Minnesotans, I think Americans should feel very hopeful. I think we should feel frustrated. We haven't seen the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, but we have states and we have more trifectas in states than we've had in a while. Don't let this opportunity go by. We're not asking for fringe uh, democratic pet projects here, if you will. We're asking for the very basics of defending our democracy that was bipartisan not that many years ago. And I still think there's a large number of Republicans that agree with this. Just give people a fair chance to vote, let them vote, and then accept the results of the election and work together to improve lives. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz, thank you so much for making sure that everybody has access and for preparing us for 2023 and reminding us that the voters decided our fate just recently in the midterms. Thank you so much. Thank you. The, the January 6th committee report was mainly focused on the ringleader in chief, but his enablers in Congress deserve some attention too as they prepare to take the reins of the House next week. We'll be back after this. In placing the blame directly on Donald Trump, the House January 6th committee stopped short of issuing criminal referrals against sitting Republican members of Congress. In five days, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy faces a vote for House Speaker from a Republican caucus with even more election deniers than on January 6th. More than 150 of them were elected or reelected to the House in November. Some members mentioned in the report could be in a position to undermine McCarthy as Speaker if he gets enough votes to take the gavel. McCarthy is one of the four members the January 6th committee referred to the House Ethics Committee, along with the gang of Congressman Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, and Andy Biggs. Biggs is challenging McCarthy for the speakership. Jim Jordan is expected to become chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He's also described in the report as a significant player in Trump's efforts to overturn the election. I'm now joined by Molly Jong-Fast, a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and host of the Fast Politics podcast, and Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude. Molly, I want to start with you. Where does this leave these members of Congress that seem to have been implicated in the January 6th report, but not asked to actually be any, any way, face any repercussions? Where does this leave them? Well, I mean, with all of these people who haven't faced repercussions, there's a question of will they do it again, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you uh, get away with it, what's the impetus for not doing it again? I do think that, you know, it's sort of surprising that there hasn't been more accountability here. And it is quite, it's quite scary. And, and you know, it's upsetting. And, and there are other members of Congress, too, who weren't. I mean, like Representative Loudermilk, where there were allegations that were never followed up. So I do think that actually it's quite worrying and I wish there had been more accountability there. 
So, Mark, one of the things that I've been fascinated about is a lot of the reporting that you're doing is, is that the people that have, are coming into office, they are now much more election deniers. But that's not what resonated with voters in November. Many of them, if anything, rejected them and wanted more people to basically tone down the effects, safeguard our democracy. And you see that there's going to be this juxtaposition between what we're going to witness, perhaps under the ringleader of Kevin McCarthy and his circus versus what is going to be expected for 2024. Can you dig a little bit about what you see there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, what people, what you have to realize, I mean, I think almost by definition, there's going to be more election deniers in the House now than there were going to be in the last election in 2020, because you know, election denying denialism wasn't really a thing in the 2020 election, right? I mean, it actually became a big and significant issue in, in 2022. So now, I mean, I think I imagine that a lot of the people who are full-on election deniers are people who are in very safe districts. So they don't have the check and balance of of knowing that, you know, voters in their district could actually punish them for being full election denier. Although I do think that the agenda is probably going to ramp down. I mean, I think one, the one X factor here is Trump. If Trump decides, you know, he's going to sort of continue to talk about election denial, how it was stolen from me and and from and Carrie Lake and the whole, you know, just go through the whole gauntlet, it, it's going to probably become something that they talk about. But I don't see it as being a resident issue, certainly for voters. And I imagine at some point, um, Republicans would will realize that it's not really doing anything and there's nothing they can do in the Congress. You know, I think it's interesting because, Mark, I think you're right. I think a lot of folks aren't looking forward to investigations by for the Biden administration. I think people feel like they have been past that and they actually want to do the people's business. But Molly, I think the challenge for Ken McCarthy is that they don't seem to have a political agenda. They don't, I mean, not a, a policy agenda. All they seem to have is a political agenda. So as we enter this new Congress, Molly, what are you looking for? What are these OO signs that the democracy is in trouble from within? Well, I mean, I think McCarthy isn't speaker yet, right? And he still may end up not being speaker. We've seen, you know, he doesn't quite have the votes. It's five days until this uh, election. This could be the second time he gets passed up. So I wouldn't. And and again, there's a lot of reporting that says that he may actually, you know, not be speaker for very long. There's a bunch of different, uh, you know, he has Republicans have a razor thin majority plus they have all these different fractions who are warring, and then you have Steve Scalise waiting in the wings. So I don't necessarily think this is a fait accompli. And in fact, uh, you know, there may be so much internal uh, kind of drama that they may never get to all of the stuff they have planned, which is largely investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop. So outside of investigations, Mark, what else can they accomplish? Well, I mean, a lot of them, I mean, there's there's some real nuisance, but also there's some real substantive thing around the debt ceiling, especially. I mean, that is, I mean, it's not like they're going to pass any bills, right? Because uh, one, they have the the very slim majority, but also they don't have the Senate, they don't have the White House. So that's not going to happen. But no, I mean, the debt ceiling is the one thing that sort of goes beyond um, just trying to sort of nuisance their way through various news cycles. So, um, and, and, you know, I, I think no one has a, a real appetite for that. I think the X factor there, though, is that 
moderates or the, the sort of what people consider the kind of non-freedom caucus part of the Republican, um, you know, Congress right now, I mean, they're fairly empowered. And and even if like 20 or 30 of them sort of band together and say, look, we're, we're going to um, we're, we're going to be reasonable here. If we have to work with Democrats, we will. And and frankly, you know, we're not in the safe districts that you might be. We're maybe in swingier districts. We might be more moderate by temperament. So we're not going to play this game. So whoever the speaker is, is going to be deeply squeezed. Right. And so it's not going to be a fun job, no matter who gets it. And I think that's will diminish the power more so. But ultimately, it's sort of a nuisance role at this point. Right. And I think one of the things that you mentioned, Mark, is hopefully they, the far right cares about their fellow colleagues that are in these not-so-safe districts. I have yet to believe that, though. Molly Tong-Fast and Mark Levich, thank you so much for joining. Still ahead, remembering soccer legend Pelé, who turned sport into art and gave millions of people of underprivileged fans a voice along the way. We'll be right back. Today, the world lost Pelé, the Brazilian king of soccer who embodied the beautiful game. Growing up in poverty in Brazil, his breakthrough into the world of soccer, highlighting Latin American excellence while also breaking color lines, was an inspiration to countless people and kids in particular. All of Latin America claimed him. Pelé was 82 years old. It's called the beautiful game, the name bestowed on soccer by its greatest player, Pelé, a man who made the impossible look effortless. Born into poverty in Sao Paulo, Brazil in 1940, Edson Arantes do Nascimento dominated the schoolyard where he picked up the nickname Pele. In 1950, he watched his father cry after Brazil's World Cup loss to Uruguay. Then I told him, Father, no, don't worry, I'm going to win one World Cup for you. Pele made good on that promise. In 1958, at just 17, he burst onto the world stage, becoming the youngest player to score a goal in a FIFA World Cup match. Brazil went on to claim the cup, the country's first ever, and later two more with Pele as their star, making him the only player to win three World Cup titles in the sport's history. The major European football clubs tried recruiting him, but Pele, also nicknamed the King by commentators, stayed loyal 19 years with his Brazilian team, Santos. Pele also became the world's most highly paid athlete, recognized everywhere. Few Americans at the time knew any professional soccer players, thrilled when he signed with the New York Cosmos in 1975 before finally calling it quits. You know, I feel very, very, very sorry because I love soccer. And uh, it's uh, like a uh, part of my life I, I lost. In his later years, he served as a U.N. ambassador and a champion of both the poor and the environment. But always remained beloved as simply Pele, the greatest soccer player ever. Sam Brock, NBC News. What a legend. Pele was 82 years old. And that's tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. 
for the love of home.